you know, you can have a sincere desire to stay clean and sober and have situational depression or incredible adversity that may push you to the edge where you might be looking for something to take the edge off. And I, in, in all honesty, I wanted to get loaded for about uh, three months every day. And uh, so I'm going to share with your listeners what I did to stay away from the first one. Uh, because it's the first one that's going to take you out. It's time for the Share Recovery Podcast, where we bring you amazing life-changing success stories from addicts and alcoholics all over the world who share their inspiring journey in recovery. And now, here's your host, Oh. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of TSP, the Share Podcast, and today we have Stephen Gerard joining us on the show, the host of Real Deal Recovery Podcast. Stephen's got one hell of a story. He's got 32 years clean. He's a nationally certified recovery coach. He's got 25 years coaching and consulting experience, and he's a world-class percussionist who also spent time in the forest of Thailand as a monk. Too much to talk about in an intro, so let's dive right in. Let's dive into Stephen's story, but first, a little share podcast news. Okay, guys, first of all, thanks so much for everyone who has helped support the Share Podcast. And for those of you listening who would like to know how you can help support the Share Podcast, let me give you a couple of ideas. First of all, the most important one, which is absolutely free, is to leave a rating and review on iTunes. iTunes single-handedly is one of the most powerful ways for people to find the Share Podcast. So to make it easy for you guys, what I've done is I've put buttons on the website, www.thesharepodcast.com. Go there on the right-hand side. The very first button reads, subscribe on iTunes. Click on that button. It's going to send you directly to the iTunes podcast app. And from there, you'll click subscribe and then go to the section that says rate and review. And please leave us a five-star rating. There's no question about it. iTunes is one of the best ways for our listeners to find the Share Podcast, especially when they're searching for it on Google. If you don't have an iPhone, then go to Stitcher Radio. It's the banner right underneath the subscribe on iTunes. Click on that and do the exact same thing. Subscribe and then leave a five-star rating and review. There's no question about it. This is the best way for you to show your support. I also want to thank all the listeners who have been clicking on the Amazon banner ad. Folks, for those of you wondering what's another fantastic way to support the show is by clicking on that banner before you shop on Amazon. You're going to shop on Amazon anyway. It's not going to cost you one penny more, and it kicks back some commission to the Share Podcast. We've already seen a dramatic increase in commission since we added the banner ad. So thanks again, guys. It's helping so much. And as far as being of service, you can also go to the website and click on the join the Facebook private group banner. It'll take you right to the Facebook private group where you can request to be added and do some service. There's newcomers in there that are posting daily, old timers sharing experience, strength, and hope. It's an absolutely beautiful way to contribute to your own recovery as well as to those in the community. So plug yourself in, Get into that private Facebook group. It's absolutely thriving. 
And again, it's a wonderful way for everyone to be of service. And of course, I want to give a big thank you to all of the listeners who have continued to give donations every month. Thank you guys so much for your generous donations. And for those of you that would like to contribute and help grow and support the Share Podcast financially, you can go to the website, click on the Donate with PayPal button, and it'll take you to the page where you can make your donation. And for those of you that use Sober Grid or looking for an app on their phone where you can find meetings, have a sobriety calculator, connect privately with members of your local recovery community, or when you travel, connect with members in recovery in order to find a meeting, then you might as well join the private alumni group for Share Podcast listeners. So go into the Sober Grid menu once you've registered. Scroll down to where it says alumni group, click on add group and type in S-H-A-I-R and the Share Podcast alumni group will pop right up. And finally, I want to give credit to the Share Podcast team that is instrumental in producing the Share Podcast, Zinzi Gugu and Evelyn E who handle the audio editing for each podcast episode, Omar Hernandez that does all the social media cover art, and Krista Wojo who handles all of our social media marketing. Without this amazing team, there's no way I could have continued to produce the podcast every week. Thank you, guys. I couldn't do this without you. So now a quick message from our sponsor and on to the show. Sober Nation is the largest online recovery community and treatment resource center. They provide treatment resources to those struggling with addiction as well as to the family members who are caught in the crossfire. On top of that, Sober Nation is a huge community of good people who share their experience with each other. They have informative content, recovery and addiction news, as well as an entire clothing line which helps expand the culture of recovery. They can easily be found at www.SoberNation.com. Sober Nation is putting recovery on the map. And finally, would you like to receive the most popular AA daily devotions free in one distribution? Transitions Daily delivers daily devotions from the 24 hours a day, AA thought for the day, daily reflections, big book quote, just for today, as Bill sees it, plus more. You can get our distribution daily via email, private Facebook group, or Twitter. Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information. And don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends in meetings and with sponsees in recovery. Now back to the show. Hey, Stephen, thanks for joining us. Great to be here, O. I'm excited, brother. How are you feeling tonight? Absolutely fantastic. I just took a walk around Manhattan, so I'm, I'm revved up. Dude, that's so cool. <laughs> you know, is it true that everybody in New York thinks they're cool? Um, actually, I don't think I'm cool. I don't think I'm cool enough to live in Brooklyn. <laughs> so I, I live in Manhattan. I, I don't have the long beard. You know, I, I, don't, have, I don't have all the right tattoos, so I, I'm sticking right here in the hood. Oh, comedy, folks. All right. Way to kick this off. You must not be from New York originally. No, originally from Seattle, but, you know, I I feel like I drove cab in New York in a past life. (laughs) All right, man. All right. Okay. Well, let's get into that a little bit. So, folks, today we have Stephen Gerard joining us on the Share Podcast, and Stephen is an accomplished percussionist who works with unusual sound sources, including self-made instruments and found objects. And recently, he launched a podcast called Real Deal Recovery that centers around relapse prevention 
with an emphasis on emotional sobriety and recovery. So, Stephen, let's jump right into your story now. So tell us a little bit about what your life is like today. Just give us an idea of what your normal daily routine looks like. My, my normal daily routine? Okay. Um, well, I usually get up at around 6 a.m., and uh, I, you know, do my normal stuff around the house. And uh, to be honest, I then meditate for 20 minutes and then I pray. And then I have a studio in Times Square where I work on percussion and I compose every morning. So I have a ritual where I, even though I pray and meditate at home, I get the express train and I say a prayer one specific prayer to the 72nd stop as a mantra, and then I say another prayer to Times Square, and then I usually spend uh, at least two hours in my studio composing, working with percussion. And then, uh, for example, today, then I went to a school and I, I teach reading, writing, and arithmetic uh, to uh, autistic students, teens and adults. And uh, then I might come back uh, home after I get done teaching and work on music or perhaps uh, teach private students after that. So that's kind of a typical day. I try to, even though I've been clean and sober for quite some time, I do endeavor to plan uh, each day around a meeting, not you know, my meeting around the day. So I try to figure out what I'm going to do that the night before. And, uh, you know, I, I'm really, I love going to meetings uh, still. So um, that's a big part of my day as well. Okay, so tell yeah. us what, what is your clean date and how much clean time do you have? My clean date is June 1st, 1984. And so at the end of this month, I'll have 32 years. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> and still making, how many meetings a week do you do on average? I go to about five, six meetings a week. Oh, my God. I yeah. Okay, you, you can't see me right now, but I've got like my hands in my head right now because I'm going, oh my God. You know, I mean, it, you're putting me to shame here. I, I love, I love, <laughs> I love, I love the meetings. I love the people. And I'll tell you one thing my recovery has not been boring. And the reason why it hasn't been boring is because I've stuck close to the pack and it just gives me a lot of energy and a lot of perspective. And, you know, everything I have is the program stamped on it. Dude, that is just beautiful i love it i needed to hear that really i have been okay. slacking severely on my meeting attendance and i was one of those guys that had a very strict four meeting a week ritual right i had two morning uh -huh. meetings that i had easy access to and then one night meeting and a saturday morning meeting that was just my staple um and since i started doing the podcast i've gotten so busy with the podcast plus uh -huh. i do interviews then I've just gotten to that point where, you know, oh, well, you know, I could go to the meeting, but I got to edit this audio and I have this interview and we're going to be talking about recovery anyway. But man, that is really inspirational. And you sound really connected. Like I can, I can feel your energy through the mic and it just sounds like, well, based on what you're doing, you must be practically levitating on a daily basis. Well, you know, uh, the longer I've been clean and sober, the more important being of service has become in my life. Yeah. And I attribute my happiness to being of service. And, you know, it's so far removed from the person that came into the rooms, you know, 32 years ago. And so, you know, in many respects, I've changed uh, in spite of myself. And I believe the reason why I've changed is, you know, the in the 12th step, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, well, 
A spiritual awakening is oftentimes described as a psychic change. And one of the things they told me when I came in was they said, look, don't worry about working these steps to perfection because you're going to be working them the rest of your life anyway. So as a result of going through all 12 steps over the years continuously, I've had a number of psychic changes. And these psychic changes have given me so much inspiration to keep with this process. That's amazing. That is, yeah. and I agree a hundred percent. I find that the more service I do, the better I feel. Obviously, I am connected with my higher power. I'm connected with my program. I'm connected with the universe. When I am seeking to help others, then I'm taking me out of the equation, and me is typically where the problems lie. So it's that sure. that constant um, service attribute helping others and in an altruistic way where you're not expecting anything in return is it's been yeah a cornerstone to my happiness not just my recovery but just in general feeling happy and and whole is is definitely i I can definitely attest to it um i was going to ask you one of my questions is how do you maintain your spiritual condition that conscious contact with a higher power you've covered pretty much all of it unless it was something else you wanted to add to add to that for our listeners um you know i will say that when i came in uh i did not have any experience in turning anything over to a higher power i survived by my wits so when the old timers told me look work these to the best of your ability. What they were telling me was, we realize that you're going to be wrestling with a lot of this, but just do your best and be as honest as you're capable of being, and that will carry you through. So if I have a message to anyone that's wrestling with this, just do the best to your, you know, you know whether you're driving yourself or not. Do it to the best of your ability. Man, that is so true. It is, I remember my sponsor told me very early on, you can lie to me, you can lie to the guy in the rooms. You can lie to your boss. But the one person you absolutely cannot lie to is yourself. Yes, oh, and the, what the steps have meant to me, uh, uh, the process has been really about developing a relationship with myself because I can't have a relationship with other people that's healthy until I've established a healthy relationship with myself. Now, this, this, I can tell where this is going, man, and I love it already. This is, okay. this is awesome. So tell us, we're going to start working backwards here. Sure. I want okay. you to tell us about the first time you drank or used drugs, and more importantly, how old you were and how they made you feel. Well, you know, to be honest with you, the first time I really got loaded, I, I really think it was the first time I ever felt happiness or joy. And uh, so that really stuck with me. The first time I got drunk, I think I was about six or seven years old. Uh, I grew up in an area of Seattle very close to a park where there was a lot of drug activity. So I could very easily go into this park and get high. I started getting uh, loaded on a regular basis in about seventh grade. And uh, it progressed. And, uh, you know, I started having problems, you know, pretty much my first year of high school. I was expelled from the first year of high school. And uh, when I was 14 or 15, uh, just to give you some of the greatest hits, okay, (laughs) of of my using, uh, when I was 14 or 15, there was this drug clinic in Seattle called the Open Door Clinic, and it was right around the corner from where a few of my drug dealers lived. And uh, I realized 
at that age that I was doing things that in my heart I knew were wrong. And I went to this drug clinic and I said, I'd like to speak to a counselor. And I went and spoke to this counselor and I said, I think I'm a drug addict. And the counselor told me I was too young. He told me I was too young to be a drug addict. So, uh, oh that my was the, God. Yeah, that was the first time I asked for help, and that was the last time I asked for help until I actually hit bottom. Um, but the writing was the reason why I bring that up is the writing was on the wall very early. Well, it's amazing, and you know, we're going to jump into your story right now, but what's amazing more than anything else is how different things are today than back then. And I, I even, like, if I try and put myself in the place of the doctor that you went to go see or the therapist that you went to go see and you said, I think I'm a drug addict or I think I'm an alcoholic, you know, and for them to say, oh, no, 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 you're too young for this. It's probably, at least for me, I'm thinking going back 30 years, the idea of being an alcoholic or being a drug addict was almost like saying that I, I don't know, I had leprosy or something, right? Like, I don't even want to touch you, that kind of a thing. And, 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 and to dissuade you almost like, you know, no, no, don't even go there. Like, eh, that's that. Yeah. Forget about that. No, 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 no. You're too young for this. You yeah, know what I mean? I'll, I'll be 54 in June. I turned 54 on June 9th. So that we're looking like 40 years ago. And, uh, you know, back then it certainly was much more of a moral issue than it certainly is today. Yeah, I think yeah. I think just in general, just the idea of having to have that conversation was probably tough. Was probably more tough for the therapist than it was for you. Well, it took me. It took some guts to go in there. I'll tell you that. But no, uh, you know, yeah, no question about yeah. it. And not only yeah. that, just the just already having the sense or understanding of where you were going. That's that's pretty. That's I would say it's it's a god shot. Uh, you know, just all, all in and of itself, that you, that you know, already you had that instinct of man, there's something wrong with me, and I've got a pretty good idea of what it is, and I need help. And you know, 40 years ago, that was you know, I'm, it was so much tougher than it is today. So, anyway, let's let's get into that, Stephen. It's time for me to turn this story over. To, it's time for me to sh- turn this show over to you. It's time for you to share your story with us: the battle against drugs and alcohol, the wreckage it caused in your life. When you hit rock bottom, and finally your journey up into recovery up until today. Now there's a lot of it, so you know. <laughs> yeah, you know. Give us the highlights. <laughs> because y'all you know, try to give you the greatest hits. Because if you look at it in perspective, I was 22 when I got clean and sober, and all of 32 years uh, at the end of this month. So I have considerably uh, more time on the planet clean and sober than uh, when before I got clean and sober. Um, you know, I'll pick up from 15 because that's where I just left you off. Right. Uh, I'll give you the next greatest hit. Uh, when I was 16, I, I have a friend. He actually went on to become quite the pop star. I won't mention his name. And we went down to the downtown public library in Seattle and checked out an overhead projector, and we made this board, and we made the most foolproof fake ID. So at 16, I now have a license to go into any state liquor store. I'm hitting bars. I'm hitting rock clubs. And, uh, you know, I have access to more drugs now. I'm running around with people a lot older than me. And uh, this uh, pretty much set the stage for me getting expelled from the next high school that I went to. Okay. <laughs> right. And, you know, uh, you know, a 16 and 17-year-old uh, high school student should not be in the pub every night, you know, mm. or should not be doing that sort of thing. And, and uh, you know, uh, it progressed. 
And uh, when I was 19, I moved to San Francisco to play in a band, and uh, I started uh, using harder drugs. And uh, I remember, like, within a few years of getting clean and sober, all of the people that I used drugs with from this time period, most of them have di- died from drug overdoses. And uh, anyway, really... Uh, so much uh, unmanageability in this one year in San Francisco. I, I almost bled to death once when I got cut. I overdosed. Um, what do you mean? What do you mean? Just you, 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 uh-huh. you cut yourself how? Um, I was uh, loaded, and I was washing a plate, and the plate snapped in half and cut my wrist, and I almost bled to death because I passed out on the floor. Oh, my God. And uh, had I not been a a drummer, I would have lost the use of all the fingers in my right, my actually my right hand. But because I was a drummer, all the tendons were developed. So eventually, when I got to the hospital and they did the operation, they were able to sew the tendons. But they told me later that they were very lucky to be able to sew my tendons up. I mean, these are the kind of things that were happening in 19. And uh, then I realized, this is the denial, Um, I'll give you the next greatest hit. Um, You know, I I was thinking, well, you know, I got a drug problem. Uh, You know, I got to leave America. (laughs) 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 I got to get out of (laughs) here. This is not good. So what do I do to get off drugs? I moved to Dublin, Ireland. Oh. And Dublin, Ireland is a very alcoholic country, and I ended up getting a job working for two radio stations over there at the age of 20, 21. And uh, I en- ended up, uh, you know, my alcoholism went to a whole other level over there. I lived there for two years, and, in, and I did, for the most part, stay away from drugs. But my alcoholism then went to another level. And uh, uh, I was making really good money over there, and uh, I spent everything, every, every penny I had on booze. I could never stop drinking. And at the time over there, it was like prohibition was here in America. The pubs closed early, and you would have to go to these illegal wine bars to drink, and I would stay there all night. So, yeah, I stopped the drugs, but then I picked up the bottle like it was going out of style. Right. I lived in Dublin for two years, ended up coming back to America. And uh, when I came back to the States... Uh, I started playing in another rock band, and I started doing drugs again with the alcohol. And uh, I'll give you some of the unmanageability that was starting to happen when I came back. Um, One night, I got stabbed in a blackout, and to this day, I have no idea who stabbed me in the shoulder. Um, I fell off a fire escape. Um, I lit my. I, ha- I was always lighting my apartment on fire. One night, I even lit the ceiling on fire. Uh, <laughs> I'm I'm funny now, (laughs) but this is the kind of stuff that was happening. There was another night where I I had this guy in my apartment, and we were doing all this coke, and I said something to him, and he he freaked out, and he grabbed my gun to shoot me, and the gun went flying out of his hand. He grabbed it so fast, it broke right through the window. This is the kind of stuff that was happening, and my health, I was down to 130 pounds, Um, And I was just in terrible health. And here's what happened. Uh, My neighbors were murdered. And uh, these are people that I had known for a number of years. Uh, What happened was my parents were out of town and I was was staying in their house, drinking around the clock and doing drugs. And while I was staying there, the neighbors were murdered. And I was in a panic because I had been in the blackout for most of the week and I didn't know what the police were going to, what I was going to tell the police because I didn't know where I had been. 
And over the course of those two or three days after they were murdered, I started to uh, have, I mean, a spiritual awakening where I was able to look at my life in a way that I hadn't ever before. You know, I knew intellectually I was a drug addict and an alcoholic, but I didn't believe it in my heart. And when this happened, I uh, heard a voice come to me. Now, it could have been, uh, you know, a delusion of some sort or what, what have you. I like to think it was my higher power um, telling me that you, I could stop. And I went to a hospital. I checked into the hospital. Uh, I called up a friend of my dad's, and I, I, I'd never been to treatment before. I said, you just have to lock me up somewhere. Right. And I went to this hospital, and I was so willing. I, you know, uh, I was really willing. And I had stopped drinking at like 4 o'clock uh, that morning. And when they took my alcohol blood count, it was like over twice the legal limit for driving. So I could have been close to alcohol overdose if you look at the oxidation rate from that many hours before. Oh, yeah. And, and I, you know, I got out of that. And here's the, uh, if, if you knew, I'd, I'd really appreciate it if you would listen up. I did everything they told me to do. When I followed the suggestions. And I got a sponsor the week I got out of that hospital. And I did some things that a lot of people don't normally do. My sponsor said, I highly recommend you make seven recovery calls a day. So in between the meetings, I bookended my day with meetings. I went to a meeting in the morning, and I usually went to a meeting later in the day. And in between those meetings, I made seven recovery phone calls. Because the, the, I, I still wanted to drink and drug when I got out of that treatment center because I'd been doing it my whole life. And uh, I, so reaching out and making those phone calls, I would call people up and I would say, this is a practice call. So when I wanted to use, this is before mobile phones and such, I was really good at picking up the phone and asking for help. And that is the reason why I have not relapsed is because I have continued to ask for help. So that's uh, so something I really, I can sum up my recovery in two words, giving and asking. You know, giving of myself to others, being of service in and out of the rooms, and asking for help from other people in the program, outside help when it's been needed, and from a higher power. Um, the, so I mentioned I bookended my day with meetings. I also got like three to four commitments. And I was really active, and I, and I changed my playmates, my playgrounds, and my playthings, and I, and I pretty much changed, and I started running with people that were really serious about staying clean and sober. You know, they say, don't take people's inventory, but I did, because I wanted to know who was serious about staying clean and sober, you know, because <laughs> I was not messing around. I mean, the way I looked at it was, you know, I mean, I, you know, I think that, you, I think if you need to be excited about your recovery, man, and the more you put into it, the more you're going to get out of it and uh, you know uh, so I, I developed a foundation in those early years that has served me really really well and I think I'll get to that later on uh, when I talk about what happened in 2001 because that's a big part of my story in recovery because you know one of the promises is we will not regret the past no wish to shut the door on it well th there might be adversity that happens in recovery that you're not going to wish to shut the door on either that you're going to be able to turn around into a positive um, so you know, I, I got that foundation, and uh, you know, I had, like I mentioned earlier, I had a really hard time with you know, third step, prayer and meditation, anything to do with a higher power. I really wrestled with, and uh, I'll, I'll tell you some of the things that I've done in recovery that kind of surprised me. 
you know, I didn't know how to write when I got. I'll, I'll kind of. I'm going to try and give your listeners an illustration of how I've been able to take asking for help and apply it to another area of my life outside of recovery, because this explains a lot of my passion for recovery. Um, I did not know how to read or write very well when I got clean and sober, particularly write. I was very, very poor. And when I had about nine years clean and sober, I made a decision to go back to school. Well, if you don't know how to write, you're going to be in trouble. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> and uh, so I realized that. I took an inventory and I said, I want to get good grades, but I can't do it because I don't know how to write. So I got into this school and they had a learning center. And I, I, I had, and so I took that humility that I utilized in my early recovery and applied it to asking for help with my writing. And I went into this uh, learning center and I said, I don't know what to do. And they sat down with me. I went in there like three, four times a week with what I was working on and they, they guided me. And then I got the New York Times or the, and the Wall Street Journal because the Wall Street Journal is very well edited. And I took a highlighter and I highlighted all the punctuation uh, in those newspapers. And that's how I learned to write. Wow. From asking help and from, you know, because I remember reading uh, when I was in early recovery the autobiography of Malcolm X and Malcolm X learned to read and write from copying the dictionary when he was in prison. So that's where I got that idea. And I'm going to tell you something not to impress you but to impress upon you the power of asking for help. I've written for um, newspapers and magazines. I've contributed to two books. I've had poetry published. I've been translated in four languages. And I just wrote my first book last year, a percussion book. Amazing. I just can't get over that I've learned how to do this. And it's been very empowering to learn how to write and express myself. And, you know, uh, clean, being clean and sober, I believe, is a process of, of uh, expressing yourself and learning about who you are as a person. And, you know, I'm a, vi a, a really big advocate of, of music and creativity and, and developing things that you really love to do in recovery. Because you know what? If you're clean and sober, we have options today. We have choices. You can choose the life that you want to have today. Um, so I kind of digress a bit. But, you know, going back to change, because when I came in, I went by the name Bang. I had orange hair like David Bowie. You know? <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. Oh, oh, I couldn't make this stuff up. That's no. how out there I was. Okay, okay. So Bang came in. You know, I would even like call people up when I was in early recovery. I was a secretary for a midnight meeting, and I would call people up, and I would say, hey, you want to be a guest on my, on my show? And they'd be like, what the hell? You? Like, oh, you want to speak at my meeting? <laughs> people were coming to the meeting just to see what Bang was going to wear. You know? <laughs> anyway, but... Okay, so you got this guy named Bang. He weighs 130 pounds. He's like crazy, right? You know, spirituality was so far removed from my life. Around the same time, when I had nine years clean and sober, I had so much anxiety and fear about going back to school. It was completely out of my comfort zone. So I found these monks from Thailand, about 35 miles out of town, and I went out on the weekends and I started meditating with them. And that really was kind of the beginning of me kind of getting out of the way. And the next year, they said, well, you know, we really think you should take it to the next level. So the next year, when I had 10 years clean and sober, this is, you know, 22 years ago, I went to Thailand to the forest and became a forest monk. And I did that for almost six months. And uh, so that was a really beneficial experience in recovery. Dude, you know, I absolutely love it. Okay. I, I, get, wait, wait, wait. Before you go... That, <laughs> Okay. I've wanted to stop you on so many things because you move kind of fast. 
But this okay. this really this is something that I just finished watching uh, this this uh, in this uh, documentary on Yogananda, and uh, you know a few of the people that I have talked to or interviewed actually went to a monastery, and that's how they got sober. So so interesting. Yeah, no, it, it, there's some really cool stuff out there, and especially now people are getting much more in touch with this whole idea of looking at. Um, religion in a new way um, because we've taken the religious dogma out of it and and actually kind of moved more into this Buddhist ex- experience where, you know, it's all from, from the inside. So how did you find, like, I don't know where to go for to, to find a, a, a Buddhist monastery. How old were you at the time and how did you find this monastery? Well, uh, you know, I was 10 years clean and sober, so I was around 32. And the monks that I was meditating with on the weekends were from Thailand. They were Thai monks. And did they have their and own, did they, I guess they had their own monastery there? Where were you at the time? Yeah, they had one. Out, I, was, I, went, I was back in Seattle. Okay. And it was a, they called them Watts, and it was about 30 miles outside of Seattle. And they set it up for me. They said, here's what you're going to do. This is where you're going to go. It was in central Thailand, way up in this forest, and uh, it was a very ascetic way of life. And, uh, you know, the reason why I did it was I wanted to call time out because I don't really, you know, uh, I always felt that I was always running so much, always doing this, doing that. And I just felt like I needed to just stop everything for a period of time. And uh, so that's what I did. And uh, now I don't really do Buddhist meditation so much. I do transcendental meditation most of the time. That's usually the type of meditation that I do now. How long were you um, in Thailand? Almost six months. Oh, man, that must have been just yeah. far out, man. Like, just the most amazing experience. Like, what would you rate that on, like, your experiences to date? And you've had a lot of them, bro. I mean, being a drummer and being okay. in bands. Where okay. does this one land on your, like, top okay. you know, things that you've done in your life? Okay, but you know what? I have to share this. I could stay there and live a really blissed out life, but I felt my mission was actually to come to be of service in a more integrated way in society. But let me, you know, uh, when people ask me, what was that experience like? What was the meditation like? You know, when you go to a meeting and you listen actively, now, there's a difference between active and passive listening. You probably know this, but like, you know, you could turn on the television and like, you know, la-da-da. And then there's really active, participatory listening. And when I go to, a, my experience has been that when I go to a meeting and I really listen, that's a form of meditation for me. And that's a lot of the same thing that I got out of my meditation in Thailand. So when I go to a meeting, and I, and I can do that. Now, I'm not always able to do that. Sometimes I'm sitting there, you know, the chatter is going, and I'm taking people's invitations. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Like, oh. you know, like that's, that's normal, right? I mean, you know, I've been around for a while, and I'm like, dude, you, you know. <laughs> but, uh, you know, because particularly I think when you've been a- around a while, it's, you become a little bit more, you know, about like that. But when I can get out of that, it's, it's a meditation for me. And that's one of the reasons why I attribute when I leave a meeting – uh, how, why I feel so much calmer when I leave. I get it. I totally, I totally get it. Okay. So, so, yeah. so those principles are the same. You can apply the those meditative principles wherever you're at. When you're actively listening and engaged in a meeting, for example, is is one way. 
um, I guess Work, in, working with another. Yes, yes. If you're if you're working with someone, and you're helping them on a step, that's a very spiritual act. Yes, a very spiritual act, and that's why it's important to take seriously. See, I take this seriously, so I don't have to take all the other stuff seriously, right. and that allows me to have a lot more fun. Absolutely. Now, when you were over there, did you shave your head and wear the gowns and all that oh, kind yeah. of stuff? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, man. Dude, seriously? I never thought in my entire <laughs> life that I would ever even remotely be interested in anything like that, but I would do it. Well, you know, the hard part, actually, is eating. You only eat one meal a day, and you sleep on a really hard floor. That's the hard part. Everything else is okay. <laughs> one meal a day? Why is that? Yeah. yeah. That's just Well, it's based on the way the Buddha lived the last 30 or so years of his life. And so you, you get up at 4 o'clock in the morning, and you can talk and stuff until around noon, and then there's no talking until the next day. And you eat the one meal. I think it was around 11 o'clock. We'd eat the one meal, and uh, you, you, nothing but liquids after that. That's wild, dude. So yeah. wild, so wild. Okay, yeah, so you can, get to, you can get into a real place of non-attachment from doing that. No, of course, of course. And yeah. plus, you know, what kind of activities were you guys doing other than meditating? We were meditating a lot. It's <laughs> <laughs> probably why you only needed to eat one today. <laughs> yeah, was, yeah, yeah. We were meditating a lot. We would do these standing meditations where we would stand like for three hours perfectly. Not perfectly still, but we, you, you don't lift your legs or your feet off the floor. And so you have to train your mind to get into the zone because after about 20 minutes, your feet start to sting. Oh, man. That's wild. Yeah. So you know, I want to talk about adversity because – my recovery, I, I have to say, my recovery has been, I am such, so blessed. You know, I'm, I'm I, I really very blessed to have gotten clean and sober at a young age. I wouldn't trade my recovery for a thing. But, you know, if you talk to people who have long-term time, they usually have, uh, you know, life can be very, very challenging. And I had a year in 2001 that was incredibly challenging. Um, in a very short period of time, I lost everything that was pretty much important to me with the exception of my family and my health. And I lost my home. Uh, I, had, I was um, affected by 9-11. I lost my, my girlfriend. Uh, that blew up. Uh, she she uh, left me with no notice. She had a bit of a nervous breakdown and, and left me with no notice. And uh, lost my home and, and uh, lost all of my work. And uh, I was directly affected by 9-11. And it was really... Uh, anyway, so I lost everything in about a, I would say about a four-month time span. And to be honest, I wanted to get loaded. And what I did was I pulled in all the things that worked for me in early recovery and kind of multiplied them by 10. Because, um, you know, you can have a sincere desire to stay clean and sober and have situational depression or incredible adversity that may push you to the edge where you might be looking for something to take the edge off. And I, in, in all honesty, I wanted to get loaded for about uh, three months every day. And uh, so I'm going to share with your listeners what I did to stay away from the first one. Uh, because it's the first one that's going to take you out, oh, not yeah. the second or th mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, so what I did was um, I got really active. I mean, I, didn't, I hadn't strayed from the program, but I uh, started, I took up new commitments and I went over on 7th Avenue and answered the phones at Intergroup. And I started taking a number of men through the steps. And uh, all 12 steps, not just a few of them, 
And yeah, I get it. I get it. Yeah, we get I mean, it. We, we were we we were not we were not mucking about, as they say in Ireland. We were we were we were doing it, you know. Now was this and, in NA or AA at the time? In both, and this is in uh, in New York City in okay. 2001. And I had one guy who had strayed from the program, who was having such anxiety, he had just about lost his job because he was having so much anxiety he couldn't do his job at work. And this guy saved me because he needed a lot of help and I had enough, I had the time to help him and take him to the steps and work with him. And on the outside, it looked like I was really helping him, but he was really helping me. That's how this works. Yeah. We, we help each other. And so I ended up having to leave New York because I didn't have, I didn't have finances and I didn't have a place to live. And uh, I, when I, I moved to Los Angeles, and I still had incredible situational depression, as I think anybody would who, went, who goes through something like this. And uh, I went to uh, this boxing gym in downtown Los Angeles. It's not there anymore. It's called LA Boxing. And it was an all-Mexican boxing gym. And I'd never boxed before. I'm 40 years old at this time. Never boxed before. I walked in there, this Mexican gym, and I was like, I'm in the wrong house, okay? (laughs) First of all, I'm... I'm really intimidated because I haven't boxed before, and I'm this white cat in this Mexican gym. Yep. Right? And it's like these these guys are throwing down, okay? And uh, a voice said, "Stay." So I so I said, "Okay." I signed up, and I started going down there every morning, and working out. And that first week that I was there, I met this guy named Dub Huntley, and Dub Huntley, his story was the basis for the Clint Eastwood movie about boxing. Million Dollar Babies. No, and really. He, and he and and Dub looked at me and I and I and he asked me what was going on and I told him a little bit. I didn't in a general way. And he said, you know, I don't normally work with amateurs. I only work with pros. But I'm going to work with you. You meet me here every morning. And I worked w- with Dub uh, five days a week for a year and a half. And what happened was is I got addicted to it because it. It, it helped me with the depression, and I was able to sleep at night. And you know, I was able to punch out all of that pain that yeah. I had. So I was able to take something very negative and turn it into a positive. And that's the opportunity that you have if you stay off drugs and alcohol. Absolutely. See, look, the reason why I have a beautiful life today is because I didn't pick up 16 years ago. And I walked through this stuff. So... That's a big part of my message is that, you know, we can get through stuff if you ask for help from others and from a higher power, and you're going to be able to turn it around. And you're going to be able, my experience has been that I've been able to take this experience, and I'm sharing it with you guys now, and I'm able to share it with others. You know, I was talking to this piano player a few months ago, and uh, he was talking to me about how he had been thinking about suicide, and I was able to share with him some things that helped him. I mean, this recovery is just such a gift. That's why I have a passion for it. You know, and normally I'm not really a long-winded speaker, but uh, I hope your listeners got something out of what I've been sharing. I'm not sure what else to tell you guys. <laughs> okay. Just say, that's my story. Yeah, I'm sticking to it. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's an incredible story, and the thing is that there's so much in there there's so much going on in your story um and the adversity that you had to face and overcome and the beautiful thing is that you used all these incredibly healthy tools to get through it all 
And that's the most important part of your message. And I know that you wanted to emphasize that, and you did. It came through absolutely beautifully. And I have been down that road as well. I have been, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm about to celebrate 13 years uh, this month, as a matter of fact, on the 26th. And, you know, by the grace of God. And it's these moments, some of the toughest moments of my life, going through a divorce, being separated from my mm-hmm. wife, almost losing my daughter, you know, being broke, m- you know, many, many times, having to m- move back in with my mother. You know, a lot of what you talk about and a lot of what you did is exactly what I did. You know, I started focusing, you know, it's usually when I'm in my, when I'm in my darkest hour, I lean on the program the most. I'm going to meetings every day. I might have the same exact share every single day, but I share every time I go to a meeting. I ask for help. Um, one of the things I love about what you said for the newcomers is the practice calls. Call seven people every day. And I tell my sponsees, here's the phone list. Pick five people out of here, okay, that aren't me, and get to know them. All right, call them because it's real easy, you know, to work the program when everything's going great. But if you lose your job or you lose your girlfriend or something catastrophic happens and you are not used to picking up the phone, you won't, unless it's to maybe the dope dealer. Um, So you have to be vigilant and it's a daily practice. Just like everything else that we do, we establish these routines. You know, every single morning, I ask God to keep me away from the first drink or drug every day. Still and after 32 God, years? Yeah. Every day. And then I ask God, please help me to be of service. Yeah. And that's a big part of my morning ritual. Yeah. Because I, 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 I cannot take this for granted. No, absolutely not. Yeah. And I have gotten, yeah. uh, that I have gotten better at doing. Um, I just recently started meditating again for 20 minutes in the morning. Um, and, and yeah, one of the things I asked for is God allow me to be of service today. And the thing is that because of, because of the podcast, and I want to talk about that right now, as a matter of fact, too, I want to springboard into that. But one of the things, not one of the things, so many of the things, you know, the podcast is, is on Twitter, is on Facebook, um, <clears throat> And so what happens is I have a private group on Facebook, and it's all with people that are in recovery. So it's a very safe haven for individuals to feel comfortable to talk about recovery in there. And so much of it is the resistance to change, resistance to go to meetings, resistance to uh, adopt a higher power in their lives. And so what I found is that the private accountability group is almost like a bridge that is that helps some of these people that are so resistant to allowing the beauty that is recovery and all that comes with it actually to come into their lives because they can they get suggestions from the other people and the members there's now we're we're close to 900 members inside that private group so when someone talks about man you know what I'm just not sure about going to meetings or I don't know about this whole God thing and higher power things. You got 15 people that post something. And Uh in many cases I've, and so this is something that I'm engaged with on a daily basis. So not only am I uh, doing service in inside the group, but it also allows others 
to do service in there as well on above and beyond what they currently do, which is their own recovery program, going to meetings and being a sponsor or being sponsored and, you know, just working the steps depending on what part of the program that they're in. So I find so much I would say for me, I find happiness, joy, and comfort in just being of service on a daily basis. Uh, I, I just I just absolutely love your message because it's just absolutely riddled with, you know, finding ways and means to help others on a daily basis. And I, I yeah. have to attribute my you know, everything, you know, my success in life in general to, to being that conduit. This is not a spectator sport. You got to get in the ring. Yes. You don't sit on the sidelines here. You got to get in the ring and start throwing some punches. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. You got to get in there. I, I've listened to a few of your podcasts, and you ask certain questions at the end. Uh, if you if you have any of those, I'd like to answer them because I thought they were very interesting questions that you've asked previous guests. Oh no, I'm I'm definitely going to get okay. there. I want to get there, but I okay. all, but we haven't talked about the podcast. So I want okay. you to tell us about the podcast that you launched, and um, what inspired you to start the Real Deal Recovery Podcast. Well, what happened? You know, I always had this idea of doing one, and I really never really took it too seriously. And then about six months ago or five months ago, I was meditating, and I had it just came to me. I said I need to do it. So I had no idea what I was doing. I, I had no clue, you know. So I just kind of stumbled my way through it, and uh, learned along the way. And we launched uh, about four weeks ago, and uh, it's topic based. So uh, it, it's a fairly short podcast, but we, you know, we, we, we're endeavoring to give uh, whoever's listening something they can hang their hat on at the completion of the podcast, and it's topic-based. You know, we have one on denial, service work, all, all, a lot of different topics. I, I have one that just hit on relapse prevention strategies, That's some of the things I talked about with you. And so that's what it's about. You know, it's topic-based, people sharing their experience on that specific topic. That's Thanks. what we're doing. All right. I love it. So, guys, I'm going to have that listed on the show notes. And, yes, I am, as a matter of fact, let me go there right now. Uh, podcasts all. The, yes, the recent one is Episode 6, Relapse Prevention Strategies. And then the one prior to that is Art in Recovery. So, And Denial is Not a River in Egypt. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'll, yeah. List, I'll have the podcast and uh, I'll also, uh, please give us our listeners the best way for them to, to contact you um, and to find either your website or your podcast or, you know, everything else well, that you feature. The website is uh, realdealrecoverypod.com. And if they would like to reach me directly or perhaps they uh, have a topic they'd like to hear discussed or something of that nature, have a question for me, they can reach me at realdealrecoverypodcast at gmail. That's realdealrecoverypodcast at gmail. You know, I do some coaching, and the coaching that I do is much different than, say, 12-step work um, because when I, when I coach people that are in recovery, we're working on the major areas of their life, for example, financial relationships, health, employment, work, and we develop action plans around those areas. Um, so it's, it's not just, it may be step work, but working on another, other areas of their life because there's a spillover when you work on all these areas. So that's what I do with people one-on-one. -on -one. Beautiful, beautiful. Okay, yeah. on Twitter, they are Real Deal Pod. 
and on Facebook. Real Deal Recovery on Facebook. You, you're on it, though. I'm on it, buddy. I'm on it. Yeah, I'm already, you are. I've already liked it. I've been there, brother. You're great. <laughs> All right, Steve. You're let's. Uh, so let's jump into the closing of the show where we answer questions for the newcomer. So I'm going to ask you five questions about your early recovery, and I want you to respond with inspiring and insightful answers you can share with our newcomers. Are you ready? Buckle up. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, man. This is phenomenal. All right, number one. Hit me. Yeah, you got it. Number one, what was keeping you from getting clean or staying clean when you first got introduced to recovery? Shame. I'll tell you why shame, because I had so much guilt about everything I was doing to myself. I had guilt about trying to kill myself. I had guilt about the things that I did that were dishonest. And I also had it as a moral issue. You know, when I went into that treatment center and they said, look, this is a disease, I felt like a 300-pound weight had come off my shoulder. And I didn't even really know it until I had gotten into that treatment center. So there was a time where you actually tried to kill yourself? Well, you know, when I got clean... Low self-esteem would have been a step up because if you're taking, <laughs> check this out, if you're taking so much drugs and you're boozing on top of all those drugs and you look at those drugs and you tell yourself, I don't know if I'm going to wake up and I don't care, that is a form of suicide. Yeah. You know? And that's where I was. And I, I, I had low self-esteem. That's what, that's what the steps are going to do, man. The steps, steps are going to build up your self-esteem so you're not going to want to use. Why would you want to do that if you love yourself? It's true. It's 100% you know, You're going to want to move on, man. You're going to want to do something. Beautiful. I love it. All right. So then tell us, Stephen, at what point did you have that spiritual awakening, that aha moment in recovery when you accepted that you were powerless over drugs and alcohol, but for the first time had developed the hope that you could recover? I don't know if I had the hope that I could recover, but I will say when I picked up that phone and I told my dad's friend, you know, you got to lock me up somewhere, and I felt the presence of a higher power telling me that I could stop, I think that was the aha moment. The other aha moment was when I realized that I made a decision that I was going to go to any length when I got out of that hospital. That was an aha moment. You know, you got, we have the ability, I, I mentioned this earlier, to make choices. Well, you know, you can make a decision to change your life. And that's what I did when I, when I got out of that hospital and I said, I'm going to dig in, I'm going to dig deep, and I'm going to go to any length. And that's pretty much what I had to do. That's beautiful, man. I love it. And it's so reminiscent. I remember, man, almost like it was yesterday. Uh, well, it was because when my daughter was born. I had like three months sober when, mm -hmm. my, when my daughter was born and I was holding her in my arms for the first time and I just had that absolute white light moment. I didn't recognize it as a white light moment at the time, but I had this sense of urgency that I never had before to get sober, to get clean and sober like for reals this time. You know, and, and I had lost my wife, I'd lost my business, and I just kept losing stuff, or I, as some of us would say, handing it over. And it wasn't until I held her in my arms, and I just remember going, I'm going to do whatever it takes. I will do whatever I have to do to not allow my daughter to have, a, you know, a using drug addict as a father. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So, I, I, man, I'm, I'm right there with you. I'm right there with you. It's like that, woof, yeah. beautiful. So number three, do you have a favorite book that you would recommend to a newcomer you read in early recovery or one that you're currently reading? No. 
What I have is a recording by John Coltrane called A Love Supreme. And I recommend that everyone listen to A Love Supreme by John Coltrane. John Coltrane recorded that record in, I think it was 1958, when he got off drugs and alcohol. And the vibrations on that record, man. I mean, you know, we're all familiar with, you know, I can suggest literature, but, you know, they can find that out on their own. <laughs> what they really need to do is get a hold of A Love Supreme by John Coltrane. All right, let me just go to YouTube right now. I'll be listening to that right now. As a but matter of fact, preferably, but let me. Oh man, not an MP3. No, you got to get the disc because the MP3 is only going to have about thirty percent of the vibrations. You have to get the CD to get all the sound. When you when you have an MP3, you're not getting the full amount of sound. Ah. So for 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 recording like a Love Supreme, which I is. It's just an amazing, it's not a bebop record, it's not a um, swing record, it's a whole other thing. It's a, it's a meditation, and uh, you need to get the CD, not an MP3 or a digital download. All right, well, some, you know, some of our listeners yeah. are just not going to go out and get the CD. So okay, well, okay, well, if they, okay, well, you know what? They can check it out on YouTube or whatever, but go buy it then after that. All right, all right, all right, okay. right. If, okay. it, it, exactly, exactly. For us, okay. it's all about the steps. Okay, 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 okay. I love it, man. I love it. Okay, yeah, so. I, I, I know. I have been accused of being a little bit fanatical. You're a music snob. <laughs> Yeah. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. No, I love the Ramones just as much, man. <laughs> Dude, gabba it's gabba, o- hey. It's okay to be a little bit of a music snob. Well, I am. Okay. I'm maybe a little bit. But, come on. You know. Come on. All right. Let's own it. All right. So number four, okay. what is the best suggestion you have ever received? I think the best, uh, best suggestion I ever received was do not worry about working the steps to perfection because you're going to be working them the rest of your life anyway. Be as honest as you're capable of being. And I think that was the best advice I ever got. Beautiful. And then number five, if you could give our newcomers only one suggestion, what would that be? I, would, I think asking for help and learning to ask for help um, is crucial to re- refraining from a relapse. So I would have to say that that, you know, and you know, uh, I've had post-traumatic stress after 9-11. I sought outside help for that periodically. Some, uh, you know, every few years I I, I go in and talk to someone about that. And uh, I I just think that uh, asking for help is very crucial. Beautiful. I love it. Great suggestion, Stephen. I have really absolutely enjoyed having you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us, man. Thank you for having me. It was really a blast. All right, folks, we have now reached the end of our show. Thanks for joining us. And as we say here in Costa Rica, Pura Vida. Pura Vida. Thank you for joining us on the Share Recovery Podcast. To check out the show notes page on this interview or to thank our guests for sharing their story, go to www.thesharepodcast.com. While you're on the website, don't forget to sign up for our free newsletter to stay up to date on the latest news, podcasts, and interviews. Want to be one of our guests and share your story? Then go to our website and click on the Share Your Story button. We share our inspiring recovery stories every Tuesday. So subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher Radio to get your free weekly download. We'll see you then. The opinions shared on this show reflect those of the individual speaker and not of any 12-step fellowship as a whole. And though we discuss 12-step recovery and the impact it had in our lives, we do not promote or endorse any 12-step anonymous program.